Well, I'm wondering this morning, if you know the Oxford martyrs, so Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cranmer, all three men were part of the English Reformation, so fighting for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. And for those core beliefs, all three men were burned at the stake. Latimer and Ridley died together on October 11, 1555, and in doing so, Latimer said to Ridley, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, for today we shall light a candle in England that by God's grace shall never be put out. Both men were unwavering, persevered in their faith. But Thomas Cranmer's experience was not so smooth. After months in prison, with constant threats of being burned at the stake, Cranmer's faith faltered. And he signed a document denouncing his faith in Christ. So denying the truth that he had so heartily defended. So Cranmer appeared to commit apostasy. And if he continued, he certainly would have committed apostasy. Because in order to live, he would have had to go on sinning deliberately, denying on a daily basis the Lord Jesus to prevent him from being burned at the stake. Now, as it turns out, Queen Mary I, well known as Bloody Mary, was not satisfied with the written denial of Cranmer's faith. Instead, she wanted him to read it out loud from the very pulpit where he faithfully preached the gospel that he was now rejecting. But in doing so, the unexpected happened. In the middle of reading his denial, Cranmer refused to remain ashamed of Jesus and boldly proclaimed what he believed to be true, including that if he should be burned at the stake, his right hand would be burned first since it signed the recantation. And he most definitely was burned at the stake. But he remained true to his word, thrusting his right hand into the flames as he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now you need to understand, that context is a very similar context to the book of Hebrews. So one in which persecution has happened and is happening and will most definitely happen in the future. And the people being persecuted are the people in the church. So the question is very simple, difficult, but simple. Will you deny your faith in the Lord Jesus? And the answer has to be absolutely not. We must not throw away our faith or our confidence in Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross, which means we must persevere. So a persevering faith is not optional, but is required in order to be welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will one day reign. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10 is on page 1007. If you're using one of the Bibles, In the chairs in front of you, my outline is right there in the bulletin. Persevering faith required. Terrifying warning and a persevering faith. As you're turning, let me remind you that 
Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling with the persecution that is most certainly coming. So they're being tempted to abandon their salvation in Christ and go back to the old covenant. So tempted to exchange Jesus, who they testify to be believing in, and turning back to Moses, the Old Testament law. Why would they do that? So that they're not persecuted, just like Cranmer. So the author's pleading with them to draw near to God, to hold fast to their confession, and to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So he argues, Jesus is better. Jesus is better in every way because he offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice that secures your salvation for all eternity. So put your faith in Christ and in nothing else and persevere in that faith. With that, let me pick it up. Verse 26, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. I'll read the entirety of our passage this morning. Verses 26 to 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith And preserve their souls. Now grab a hold of the flow here. Because in verses 19 to 25, the author exhorted these dear believers to draw near to God, verse 22, to hold fast to their confession, verse 23, and to stir up one another to love and good deeds, verse 24. Now in verses 26 to 31, he's warning them. To not go on sinning deliberately. So don't apostatize. Otherwise, there is a fearful expectation of judgment. And then, verses 32 to 39, he's encouraging them. To do what? To persevere in the faith. 
so they might receive the great reward of the promised new heavens and new earth when Christ returns in all of his glory. So the flow, exhortation, warning, and then encouragement. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like good parenting to me. I am teaching the parenting class, right? That sounds like good parenting to me. Exhortation, warning, encouragement. One commentator says, it's no fun to sit down with a child and give them a good talking to that requires firm discipline. But there is also this special sweetness that comes right after of holding them close, brushing away their tears, and gently encouraging them that they can do better and they must do better. Well, that's what's taking place in our passage this morning. But that starts with number one, a terrifying warning and the terror of apostasy. So verse 26, he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Now, what does the author mean by sinning deliberately? Does he mean that all conscious, purposeful, deliberate sin nullifies the sacrifice of Christ? No, that's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying that if you continue in sin and definitively refuse to repent of that sin, so actively rejecting the good news of the gospel and willingly choosing the broad road that leads to destruction, if you choose to do that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fire that will consume all of Christ's enemies because you're actively rejecting the only valid sacrifice for sin that's in Jesus. And since there's no other way to be justified before God, you have absolutely no hope of salvation, but instead are condemned to judgment for all eternity. And who exactly is this warning to? It's to the people in the church. He says, for if you go on sinning deliberately, notice after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And he just said in verse 24, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another, spurring one another on. And all the more as you see the day of Christ's return drawing near. So these are church-going people, people who know and understand and profess to believe in the good news of the gospel. In fact, Hebrews 6, 4 describes them as those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. So these are clearly church people. So he's warning the people in the church, that if you have this kind of knowledge of the truth and you deliberately choose to reject it, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So he's warning them not to commit apostasy. If you walk away from Christ, you can't experience the forgiveness of sins that's only available in Christ. That's the terror of apostasy. 
which results in B, the terror of judgment, which will be worse than any consequence seen in the entire Old Testament, including rejecting the law of Moses, because the author argues from the lesser to the greater. Verses 28 and 29, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has? Notice, number one, trampled underfoot the Son of God. Number two, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And number three, outraged the spirit of grace. So clearly, this is an argument from lesser to greater. The lesser being rejecting the Old Testament law and the greater being rejecting the Son of God, the sacrifice of God, and the Spirit of God. So let's start with the lesser. A great example of this is Deuteronomy 17, which is a law against idolatry. Deuteronomy 17, verse 2 says, If there is found among you a man or woman who has served other gods and worship them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which God has forbidden, and it is told to you, then you shall inquire diligently. If it is true that such an abomination has been done, you shall bring the man or the woman out to your gates, and you shall stone them to death. But only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall that person be put to death. So shall you purge the evil from your Midst. Now, what's the point of the two or three witnesses? It's to make sure the accusation is proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. So it's absolutely true. They worship false gods. And therefore, they stoned them to death. Now, that's shocking to us, isn't it? That people were killed for worshiping false gods. But remember, this is Deuteronomy 17. So these people had seen the glorious miracles of the Exodus. They saw the 10 plagues. They saw the darkness, except where the people of God lived. There it was light. They saw the death of the firstborn son and the glorious salvation through the Passover lamb slaughtered on their behalf. And the people covered by the blood delivered not only from judgment, but enslavement. And God's glorious provision... In the wilderness, they saw that bread from heaven every single morning, water from a rock for 40 years, and their shoes never wore out. My point is they knowingly rejected the God who provided such a glorious salvation in order to worship innate objects, false gods made by hands that could never save them as if they were anywhere comparable to the one true God. That kind of rejection was worthy of death and judgment and being stoned. Well, then how much more? Those who have actually seen the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ, those who have heard and understood, and at one time declared they believed in his once-for-all sacrifice for their salvation. But now, after all of that, retract it, deny it, actively walk away from it. 
The author says they are deserving of a far greater punishment because they have trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant and have outraged the Spirit of grace. Now, let me quickly explain. Trampling underfoot the Son of God describes those who reject the identity and the deity of the Lord Jesus. And remember the significance of that. Hebrews 1.1, God has spoken to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways. That's the Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken how? In his son. So to reject the Lord Jesus is to reject God's great plan of redemption, which he has accomplished through his son. So figuratively speaking, you're taking the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation, the one who accomplished your salvation. You're taking him and you're throwing him on the ground and you're grinding him into the dirt. You're trampling underfoot the Son of God. Yeah, that's worthy of eternal judgment. Absolutely. Second offense, rejecting the sacrifice of God. Verse 29 says, profaning the blood of the covenant by which a person was sanctified. Now just think about this in light of the past nine chapters of Hebrews. He has talked at length about Jesus's blood, hasn't he? The blood that removes sin, the blood that saves and sanctifies, the blood that cleanses the conscience, gives access to God's presence, and secures the eternal redemption of anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus. So if you decide to profane that blood, you no longer glory in its ability to save, sanctify, reconcile, restore, or redeem you. But instead, you consider it unclean. You consider it unholy, defiled, and disgusting to you. So to profane the blood of the covenant is to wholeheartedly reject the sacrifice Christ made for your salvation. So yes, if you choose to do that, it is worthy of an eternal judgment. Rejecting the Son of God, rejecting the sacrifice of God. Now number three, rejecting the Spirit of God. How much worse punishment is deserved for those who trample underfoot the Son of God, profane the blood of Christ, and outrage the Spirit of grace? These people would deliberately be closing their eyes to the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like the Pharisees, when they ascribe the Spirit's work to the power of demons which is why their condemnation is the same. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin shall be forgiven, except blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That sin shall not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Why? Because you're rejecting the Spirit of grace. 
So the spirit of undeserved, I don't want undeserved kindness. That's what you're saying. The spirit of undeserved kindness that opens your eyes to see the reality of sin, the glory of Christ, the salvation available in him, and to respond to it by faith. That spirit you're rejecting. So yes, if you do that, it's worthy of eternal judgment. And what exactly is that judgment? It's see the terror of God himself. Verse 29 quotes God saying, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Notice the Lord will judge his people. Don't commit apostasy because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, we all recognize earthly justice is not always swift or just or even adequate. In fact, they sometimes get it wrong. I mean, just think about the O.J. Simpson trial. But God's justice is never wrong. It's always exact, rightly applied, and perfectly fits the crime. Which should strike terror into our hearts this morning. We can't hide from him. He knows everything. And he will punish perfectly. This is not just an exam for a class. This is not your yearly work evaluation. This is God's final and eternal judgment. Which is why it's before God himself. That's why the author says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's just think about that for a moment. Every single one of us will stand before the living God. And we will give an account for every thought, every word, and every deed that we have ever done. And most importantly, what we have done with Jesus. Whether we believed in him or spurned him, embraced him or rejected him, And the consequence of that decision will determine our entire eternal well-being. Whether it is joy unimaginable or it is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, of course, the context, as I've highlighted, is persecution. So you might be sitting there thinking, we're not in a situation like that. We're not in a situation like Latimer, Ridley, or Cranmer. Interesting stories, but that's not us. We're not even in a situation like these Jewish Christians in Rome. 
We're not dealing with that. So I'm not really worried about committing apostasy. And you're right. We're not being persecuted. We're certainly not being tempted to run back to the old covenant or to the law of Moses. But that's not the threat for us, is it? Our greatest threat is not persecution. It's worldliness. It's secularism. That's our threat. You know, Mark 4, Jesus says, the sower sows the seed liberally so that some falls on the path where the, word, where the birds devour it. Some falls on rocky soil, springs up, but quickly withers away. And then some falls among the thorns, which slowly but surely choke it out. So in some hearts, the word does nothing. But in other hearts, the word grows quickly, but then it fades away. Why does it fade away so quickly? Because persecution puts the would-be Christian out of commission. But in the third category, the word sinks in just a little bit deeper. And the plant sprouts almost to the point of bearing fruit. So it looks like good soil. New life's taken root. Everything seems to be on track for the harvest. Until the thorns come. Which are what? The worries of the world. The deceitfulness of riches. And the desire for other things. So mortgage payments. Car repairs. The faucet leaks again. Babies crying. Doctor visits. Taxes are late again this year. Checkbook isn't balanced. Water heater breaks. And you still have work that needs to get done. Or there's just some things that you have to have in order to be happy. The new car, the big house, the extravagant vacation, the boat, the camper, the fancy toy. Or, you know, life would just be easier if Christianity wasn't so extreme. I mean, is Jesus really the only way? Can't I just be a nice person, love people, be helpful, do all of those good things, and avoid telling them that if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell when they die? Wouldn't it be better to just soften the requirements a little bit? Tone down the message a little bit. Preach shorter sermons. Press deeper into, less deep into my heart. Help me to feel good and walk away thinking I'm fine. Everything's all right. Wouldn't it be better 
to lighten up a bit. Enjoy life. Avoid conflict. And still go to heaven. In my mind, those are the threats we face as Americans. This is the American church, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things that will absolutely choke out your spiritual life and cause you to neglect, verse 24, the gathering of the saints, the preaching of the word, and the opportunity to spur one another on to love and good deeds, which we absolutely need. And all the more as we see the day of Christ's return coming. So the threat is, we slowly but surely walk away from Jesus. Like the frog in the pot, not even knowing that we're being cooked. So let me just ask, plain and simple, is Jesus enough for you this morning? Please do not answer quickly. Is Jesus really enough? Is it clear in your minds? Crystal clear. With deep conviction that Jesus is better than anything this life could ever offer you. If there's any hesitation in your answer, then this warning is for you. That the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things may be choking out the glory of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross to secure your salvation for all eternity. And I appeal to you, heed the warning. Repent of your sin and cling to Christ. Believe in Christ. Delight yourself only in Christ. Make sure in your heart of heart that he's my treasure forever. Make sure that you're holding fast to him and him only and not to other things. Jesus is better than anything this life has to offer. That's number one, a terrifying warning. May we heed the warning. Number two, a persevering faith. Hear the shift in tone. Verses 32 to 39, I'll read them again. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, 
and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice the transition from exhortation and warning, verses 19 to 31, to encouragement. Verses 32 to 39. What exactly is the encouragement? It's A, to remember the past and all the things they've already endured. How? By looking forward to the future glory of a better possession. And B, to persevere in the present with confidence, walking in obedience, and in ongoing faith in Jesus. Let's start with A and the encouragement to remember the past. What's helpful to know is this is recorded history, meaning these things really did happen under Emperor Claudius in 49 AD. So Christians were publicly exposed to reproach, endured suffering, had their property taken, and were thrown into jail just for believing in Jesus. In fact, one historian Suetonius says there were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of the Lord Jesus, so that as a result, Claudius expelled them from Rome altogether. Almost everybody agrees. He's talking about the riots that happened when large numbers of Jewish people left the synagogue and became Christians. And as a result, were banished from their synagogues, and Claudius got sick of the entire turmoil. Why is all this happening in the Jewish quarter? So he threw out all the Christians out of Rome altogether. My point is this really did happen. That after these Jewish believers were enlightened, they endured hard struggles, suffering, were publicly exposed to reproach and and affliction, sometimes with those so treated and joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. What does all that mean? It means that in the past, these dear Christians chose to identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Rather, and rather than avoid being persecuted. And the truth is, they went to great lengths, didn't they, to do it? I mean, just think about the list. Being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That means they were victims of verbal abuse and mockery. That they were shamed in the public square for what they believed. They identified with Christ And they were persecuted for it. And they identified with their fellow Christians, right? They they had compassion on those in jails, in jail, which means they cared for those who were imprisoned for their faith. You need to understand in the first century, prisoners had no means of survival apart from friends and family who brought them food and water and clothing. But to visit them came at great risk because you weren't just identifying yourselves with them. You are identifying yourselves with Christ. Which, by the way, brings great clarity, doesn't it? To Jesus' words in Matthew 25. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. Imprisoned, you came to be with me. Do you remember the context of that parable? It's the final judgment. It's the evaluation at the final judgment. 
And Jesus is very pointed in his words for those who are faithful in the midst of persecution. He says, verse 34, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit. Inherit what? The kingdom prepared for you. That's the result of being faithful. What do you inherit? The kingdom of God for all eternity. Here's my favorite, verse 34. That they joyfully, don't miss that, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. How do you think we would have handled that? The government took my property away because I'm a Christian. Justice! You would be all over town. You'd be on the news. Right? Justice, justice, justice. We stink it joyfully. The early church seemed to have a much lighter grip on their possessions as I read the New Testament. Acts 2.45 says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to anyone who had need. Housing market's up. Let's sell. I can get $400,000 for my house right now. And I can give it away. Joyfully. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So giving stuff away, offering what they had, and being generous with the resources and the possessions that they had. Hebrews 10.34 tells us they endured the plundering of their property with joy. What's remarkable is not that they lost their possessions because they identified with Christ. That's not remarkable. What's remarkable is that they responded with joy. Here's the question you have got to be asking. You must be asking, especially if you want this to be true of you. Why? Why were they able to respond with such joy and gratefulness and praise and deep-seated contentment even in the midst of such terrible persecution? The text tells us. Look at verse 34. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, just for clarity, is he talking about another home in the hills? I I don't care about this one. You can take this one. I have another one over there. It's bigger. It's nicer. Is he talking about another car or clothes or stuff that you somehow have stashed in the back someplace? No, he's talking about number two, the hope 
of future glory. So the motivation to endure persecution has everything to do with knowing for certain with conviction that there's a kingdom coming with eternal possessions and heavenly treasures where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. So an inheritance, according to 1 Peter 1, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Who's the you? It's those who are born again to a living hope in a living Savior who are protected by the power of God through faith for what? For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. So when Christ returns, and because that's true, 1 Peter agrees, you can greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by what? By various trials. Why the trials, Peter? To prove your faith is really in Jesus and not in other things. What are the other things? The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Why should we remember the past? Because it reminds us of the pure joy that we had when we first came to faith in Christ. Because we counted the cost. And we declared, Jesus is better. We are happy to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. So let me just ask, is that where you're at this morning? Is your joy the same as when you first came to faith? Are you feeling like a frog in the pot? Is your joy the same? Are, are, are your eyes still fixed on Jesus? Is that future glory of the new heavens and the new earth still the delight? I long to be there, the celestial city where there will be no more sin or sadness, sickness or death, where things will be good and right and just with people who are loving and kind. And don't forget the best part. Jesus is there, ruling and reigning and being worshiped as he deserves to be worshiped. Because all the benefits of heaven pale in comparison to being with God and in God's presence. Listen to me very carefully. If that future glory is not in your constant view, then you have no chance of enduring persecution or trials or even the worries of the world the deceitfulness of riches, or the desire for other things. Jesus is better. Front and center. 
and his return will be glorious. That's how you fight the fight of faith. Not worthy to be compared with Jesus. Jesus is better. I'm telling you, it is super easy to lose focus. When is it most easy to lose focus? When you neglect the gathering of the saints. Isn't that true? Oh, you're just pushing for church attendance. No, I'm not. I could care less. Go to another church where you can be fed and you can delight yourself in Jesus. I don't care where you go. I'm trying to tell you, you lose focus when you neglect the gathering of the saints. Where the word is faithfully preached, fellowship takes place, and you're reminded Jesus is better all day long and twice on Sundays. Here's the question How do we persevere in the present? B. The author gives us three ways to persevere. Number one, persevere in confidence. Number two, persevere in obedience. Number three, persevere in faith. Let's start with number one, persevere in confidence. The author says, verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward. Is he talking about confidence in yourself? Is he talking about self-confidence, self-assurance? Absolutely not. He's talking about a confidence rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross. So his broken body and his shed blood. In fact, just look back at Hebrews 10, 19. He just exhorted them. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By your own effort, by your own merit? No, he says, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, his body broken. So he's talking about an unwavering confidence that is rooted and grounded in Christ. So here's the question. Where's your confidence this morning? Is it in yourself? In all that you do by your own effort for your own glory? Is it in a relationship? Do you think that's what would bring you joy and contentment? If you just meet the right person or if you were just married to the right person? Or is it in your career? Here's the deceitfulness of riches. Is it in your money? Is it in your retirement plan? Is that where your confidence is tethered to financial security, doing what you want, when you want, with whoever you want? Is it lodged in good health, physical fitness? You're banking on a body that will go the distance and doctors who are able to fix it from back pain all the way to cancer. You know that all? Sounds great. And I'm not here to say all those things are wrong or bad. I'm not saying that. In fact, you can put some confidence in those things. But if all your eggs are in that basket, if all your confidence is lodged in those things, then you're going to be terribly disappointed. None of those things are going to last. I 
appeal to you. Put your confidence in Christ. Make him the object of your faith. Make him the North Pole of your affections. And I promise you, you will persevere with confidence because your hope is not grounded in you, but in him. And he will never, ever disappoint you. Number one, persevere in confidence. Number two, persevere in obedience. The author says, verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done, notice the will of God. You may receive what is promised. Now, do you remember chapter nine, verse nine? That when God said sacrifices and offerings, I have not desired, but a body I have prepared for you, for Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Verse nine, behold, I have come to do your will, God's will. Well, the same is true for believers. We're called and commanded to persevere in obedience, which should be no surprise. I remember where we started this morning, the warning, verse 26, that we must not go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So what's the opposite? The opposite is persevering in obedience, remaining faithful to God's will, regardless of who calls or commands us to do otherwise. You know, I started out this morning with the Oxford Martyrs, which includes Ridley, Latimer, and Cranmer. Well, on one occasion, Latimer preached before King Henry VIII, and in doing so, apparently, he offended him as a result of his passionate, fiery, gospel-saturated sermon. So Henry, King Henry VIII, commanded him to come back again and to start with an apology and then preach another sermon. So on the following Sunday, after reading the passage, he prayed for the sermon. But in doing so, he prayed explicitly for himself. So he prayed, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you speak this day? To the high and mighty king who can take away your life if you offend him. But also, consider where it is that you've come from and whose message you are sent to speak to the great and mighty God who is ever-present, holds all your ways in his hands and can cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care, Hugh, to deliver this message faithfully and obediently. Do you know what he did? He preached the exact same sermon. Only he preached it with even more passion and boldness and clarity. Isn't that awesome? Uh, that's so 
encouraging to me. Boy, it makes you think of the saints of old, doesn't it? Oh yeah, that's where he's going in Hebrews 11. Because they encourage us on. We must not fear those who can kill the body, but the one who can kill the body and cast it into hell. We must walk obediently before the Lord our God, and we must be faithful to do his will. Because when we do his will, we have every confidence in the world that we will receive all that he has promised. That's why he says, verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So be clear. It's not wishful thinking that gets you into heaven. It's not those who talk, talk, talk about the Bible all day long. Or those who have done great things for God in the past and spend all their time recalling the glory days when they used to obey. But instead, your current, present, persevering obedience. What's required? A slow, faithful obedience, all in the same direction. Now, on the basis of verse 36, you might ask, does that mean that salvation is by works? Absolutely not. Look at where he goes next. Verse 37, quoting Habakkuk 2.3. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, pointing forward to Christ's return. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then he encourages them, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's not a works-based salvation. It is a faith-based salvation, which means we must finish well, beloved. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, and the blood that has fully atoned for our sin, past, present, and future. And the reality that he empowers us even now through his spirit to persevere even in the midst of the hardest of trials. How do we do that? The same way that we have always done that. By looking forward to the future glory of his return. Just like we did in the past. Which gave us the confidence we needed to endure past persecution. Past suffering. And past difficulty. And what keeps us from getting distracted by other worries and other desires and other affections. How do we persevere? By glorying in the gospel and looking forward to Christ's return. How do we do that? By faith. Just look at chapter 11, verse 1. It couldn't be more clear. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet 
seen. Dear believer, keep going. Keep running. Keep your eye fixed on Jesus and his future glory. The celestial city where there will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more sickness or death, where things will be good and right and just, where people will be loving and kind and will worship the Lord Jesus. Who deserves to be worshiped by all? Dear believer, be warned and be encouraged this morning that we together as a church are not those who shrink back, but those who persevere in confidence, in obedience, and in faith. For God said, my righteous ones shall live by faith. Allow me to pray. Father, we desperately need your help this morning. There's not a single person here who's not a frog in the pot. Father, we feel the pull on a daily basis. The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Lord, I pray for you to be faithful in our lives, to keep our hearts tethered to the Lord Jesus, and for us to be working diligently to keep our hearts tethered to the Lord Jesus, that we would persevere in confidence, eyes fixed on Jesus, that we would be persevering in obedience, doing the will of God, and that we would persevere in faith, looking forward and longing for Christ's return. Do that good work, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.